Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet Charlotte area authors and those who visit the Queen City, and we hear them read their work. Charlotte Reader's Podcast is part of the Queen City Podcast Network, a collection of locally based, locally produced, locally focused podcasts that you can take anywhere and listen to at your own pace. We're grateful to our Season 3 sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, for helping local authors and those who visit the Queen City give voice to their written words. Park Road Books is the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, with a welcoming staff ready to help you find your next great read. The store is right there in the Park Road Shopping Center with the big blue letters. Charlotte Mecklenburg Library serves as an essential connector of a thriving community of readers, leaders, and learners. With 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence, their mission is to improve lives and build a strong community. This show is recorded in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. It's a welcoming space for members who like to collaborate and be creative. You can find links and information about this episode in the show notes at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Greg Gerald, pastor, community activist, saxophonist, and author of A Riff of Love, a melodic true story of his life in Enderley Park, a Charlotte community misunderstood and often ignored by the movers and shakers in the Queen City. This is not a book to be taken lightly, nor one that a white person can read without becoming a bit uncomfortable at times. Greg pushes the reader to see race and poverty in ways that weren't taught to white folk growing up and he invites every one of us to walk the streets of his neighborhood with new eyes. He starts the story late at night with him standing on the steps of a trap house where his skin color makes him stand out. He knocks, someone answers, turns and shouts. There's a white man at the door to see you. There's that knot in my stomach again. Tighter this time. The back of my t-shirt is getting wet. In the world where I'm from, we don't say things like white man. White is normative. It can be safely assumed. Whiteness need not be spoken. No, it ought not be spoken. Calling me a white man is not only unnecessary, it's plain old impolite. To my ears, modifiers about race are only needed when a non-white person is involved. There are black-owned businesses, black churches, Latino credit unions, Asian restaurants, the ethnic foods aisle at the grocery store, and so on. But nothing gets labeled white. It is assumed that white is regular, normal even. The code is clear, although the specifics of it are unwritten. Whiteness should not be named. Unless, of course, one is looking to create a scene, which is what I have here now. Hearing white sends all my discomfort rushing back. I am transgressing boundaries to be in this space. All of my racial assumptions come with me, though I do not yet know about many of them. I assume a reasonable measure of safety, a safety partly assured by my whiteness. The well-known barrier that stands, stands guard around this space is insufficient to keep me on the outside. To knock on the door is an opportunity I am entitled to, despite the fact that many of my neighbors would not dare attempt it. I bring my whole self when I knock on that door, even though there's a lot of myself I do not know about. 
but I'm learning now. White. It sounds so aggressive when he says it. I wonder if this was a good idea after all, to come here and have my fragility shattered. I'm just trying to do good. But this young man, so that everybody can hear it, has named for me the obvious thing that I'm hoping no one will notice. Somehow I want my whiteness to be the miracle salve for all racial discomfort. Everybody be calm. There's a white guy here. I hold a near religious belief that it is powerful enough both not to be noticed and at the same time to be the reassurance of the benevolence of the universe. I have crossed barriers to get here. My host is doing the same in return. He has stepped across one of my boundaries, one I have never been confronted with in this manner, one I scarcely knew I had. We are encountering one another in in an unusual and vulnerable way. The trap house seems like a fortress from the outside. It is a place of danger. There are drugs. Word on the street is that there are guns as well. One does not just carelessly knock on the door. The house inspires fear around the neighborhood. No one knows what might be happening inside. Now, I'm seeing the chinks in the armor. This place is vulnerable, and my presence is heightening the feeling of vulnerability. These people are outcasts of society. Some are homeless and are being taken in. Many have gone through the humiliation of arrest and prosecution, their bodies taken from them and warehoused in undesirable places. They have been controlled, treated as menaces. With records and rap sheets, only illicit work and under-the-table jobs remain as reasonable options. Why not go into sales? There is at least the illusion of safety in this house, and if not safety, then a chance to forget for a little while. I'm disturbing a refuge of the heavy laden. I'm scared and wondering whether this was the right idea. He is scared and wondering whether I will be bringing this gathering to a halt. We are acting out a drama that has been happening on this land since my ancestors first brought his ancestors here by kidnapping and and rape and murder. Our bodies know this even if our minds cannot speak it. We have our parts memorized without anyone ever passing out the script. For my part, the fear of blackness comes silently, not by nature, but by wordless teaching. No one ever told me to perceive danger in dark skin, but all my people learned the lesson and passed the test. The idea that a house party is dangerous never crossed my mind in my lily-white college. In a black neighborhood, I suppose it to be one step from a riot. My host has learned the script as well though likely for him by personal experience and not surreptitious rumor. He is afraid that I might be a cop, or that I might call the cops, or that my invasion of this space is an initial step towards his eventual displacement from it by the mysterious forces of the market. His fears are well-founded, learned through generations of experience. We are performing a drama that we did not choose, that we cannot escape. And so here we stand afraid we can do no other trap house midnight there's a white man here to see you and then victor a neighbor and friend whom i have known for a year or so steps away from the card game and into the front room to see who the strange white man is he finishes swallowing his most recent sip of beer and shouts to the back of the house that's not a white man that's brother greg Greg Gerald is co-founder and chief door answerer at QC Family Tree, a community of rooted discipleship in the West Charlotte neighborhood of Enderley Park. 
Greg shares life there with a host of neighbors who have become family, as well as his wife Helms and sons John Tyson and Zeb. He's proud of his neighborhood and the people who occupy it and fights the good fight for them every day. As the words in his book reveal, he does not back down when the adversary is racism, poverty, and the forces that perpetuate both. Greg is the author of A Riff of Love, Notes on Community and Belonging, from Cascade Books. Greg, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Landis. So, Greg, before we talk about the opening passage um, that you read from your book, A Riff of Love, Notes on Community and Belonging, I'd like to talk about you for just a second. Sure. Uh, what Lily White College did you go to? <laughs> <laughs> I went to Appalachian State University up in Boone. Okay. And then did you go directly from there to seminary? or? I did. Uh, I moved to Richmond, Virginia, and my wife and I were both attending seminary. She actually started a year before I did, mm-hmm. um, but we lived there in Richmond for about five years. And for our listeners, that's a Baptist seminary, but it's a different kind of Baptist seminary? Or <laughs> right. <what? laughs> it's not your Jerry Falwell Baptist. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's not a, your father's. Uh, well, it could be your father's. I right. It could be. It could be. Yeah. It's not a Southern Baptist seminary, so right. it's a, a right. more progressive Baptist seminary. I often have a hard time explaining to people the difference between a Baptist and a Southern Baptist. Yeah. yeah. There are some. <laughs> there are different ways of being Baptist. Yeah. So you and your wife have invested your lives becoming less white in a neighborhood that's just uh, that maybe few people in South Charlotte even know exists. For sure. Yeah, and um, did you have some kind of vision or conversion or something that told you Enderly Park is where you should be? I mean, I mean I'm not saying you're like Saul headed on the road somewhere, but did it come to you in a, in, or did you gravitate there in some other way? Sure. So uh, two really key things happened for me. Uh, while I was a student at Appalachian State, I was involved in a campus ministry group mm-hmm. through the that was called the Baptist uh, Baptist Student Union, it was called then, Baptist Campus Ministry, they're called now. And uh, we had the opportunity to do some summer, what we called then, summer mission work. And so I signed up uh, thinking I was going to go save the world, and I got sent to East St. Louis, Illinois. Mm-hmm. East St. Louis is one of the toughest cities in the country uh, in terms of poverty, all the, the things that, the statistics that people measure East St. Louis does mm-hmm. very, very poorly on. Uh, East St. Louis is full of life, full of amazing people. Uh, a lot of important people in history. Miles Davis from East St. Louis, Jackie mm-hmm. Joyner Kersey from East mm-hmm. St. Louis, Steve Harvey, uh, brilliant, brilliant people um, from East St. Louis. So I thought I was going to save the world, and, and what was actually going to happen, what did happen, was that I started to get turned around by mm. the people mm. uh, of of the Samuel Gompers homes mm. in East St. Louis. So while you're in seminary, are you thinking, what am I going to do with this? Right, so exactly. So I go off to seminary. I, I am already pretty clued in that being a, ch- a church pastor is probably not the direction that I'm headed. Mm. Um, but this this experience has so shaken my world that I'm looking for, uh, what do I want to do? And, and the couple things that were important was uh, where that I lived in the neighborhood where I worked mm-hmm. in, during that experience. And so the work hours were great, but the after work hours were even better. Mm. Um, and so uh, along the way, I also met through writings uh, and reading a couple of other a Baptist, a, a Baptist saint and a Catholic saint uh, who became really uh, formative for me. So mm. the Catholic was Dorothy Day, uh, who started the Catholic worker movement during the, the Great Depression, Houses of Hospitality in New York. The, the, the idea we currently have of a soup kitchen 
began at the Catholic worker houses. And the other uh, was a Baptist preacher called Clarence Jordan, who lived down in South Georgia and started this interracial farming commune in South Georgia in the 1940s uh, in in the city of Americas. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that um, they were thought of as oddballs for a while, but Mm -hmm. as the civil rights movement heated up, uh, they, they threatened the status quo. And uh, so what eventually was birthed from Koinonia Farm, as they called it, was Habitat for Humanity. Uh, so Millard Fuller, who helped to start Habitat for Humanity, was a member of that interracial mm-hmm. farming commune. So you, you and your wife, Helms, you planted yourself, so to speak, in Enderley Park, and, mm-hmm. you, and you grew this ministry called QC Family called Tree. QC Family like Tree. all the images I'm using here, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But there is a big tree right in front of your house. There right? is. There's an enormous oak tree, <laughs> 200 years old. Yeah. So tell our listeners a little bit about what QC Family Tree is. Sure. So uh, we've tried to take uh, those kind of similar ideals that we've learned from the people of East St. Louis, from Dorothy Day, from Clarence Jordan, uh, for one, of being planted, mm-hmm. uh, being rooted in this particular place. And so when you when you stay rooted and uh, when you don't just drive in for work, um, not that that's not important. There's there's important work that people do in that fashion. Um, but for us, we've wanted to live there, mm. to be totally immersed in that in that space. And uh, we've been able, by the by good fortune, by the grace of God, we might say, to offer hospitality to our neighbors. Mm. And so sometimes that means uh, they join us around the table for meals. Sometimes it means um, when they become homeless, we have a empty room in our house that uh, will allow them to to stay in and over the course of doing that for a long time we developed this solidarity we talk about it in terms of kinship uh, the ways that that people's lives become knit together by living in close proximity to each other and this neighborhood that uh, you've adopted and it sounds like from the first passage which has also adopted you that's right <laughs> as well yeah. you, you, you talk about it on your website as part of your beliefs that um, the people of Enderley Park are the good soil on which we desire to be planted. Can you mm-hmm. can you elaborate on that just a bit? Sure. So, uh, so what what people generally see uh, in Enderley Park and neighborhood we were taught to call these places the inner city, right? These are, these are places mm-hmm. where um, poor people, mostly black people or people of color live, uh, what we've been taught to see and what actually exists on the street tend to be very different things. So uh, a lot of people would think of those neighborhoods as a place to escape from, a place to get away from. Uh, But we think this has been uh, the most important place for us to be planted because of all the goodness that exists there, the way that uh, people in acts of solidarity and these beautiful improvisations, as I talk Mm -hmm. about in the book, um, learn how to make uh, beautiful lives out of oftentimes a scarcity of resources and that scarcity comes from disinvestment by mm-hmm. the city, disinvestment yeah. by the state, disinvestment by private sources. And we're going to talk about that. In, yeah, in so we'll get into yeah, that. Yeah. But, uh. but but just orient us for a minute. Uh, you, you you call it the neighborhood Tuck, right? Right, right. <laughs> so the main thoroughfare is Tuckasegee Road, right. and so the neighbors uh, often there will say that we're we're mm-hmm. this neighborhood is Tuck, yeah. or we're on Tuck, <laughs> okay. right? Uh, for Tuckasegee. So we're talking about a mile and a half, two miles due west of downtown near Freedom Drive. All right, I think I know, but why the title A Riff of Love? You've got to love the music as well. And yeah, so, so I, I grabbed the lyric from a band called um, Over the Rhine, uh, this song called The Trumpet Child. 
and as I was, as I was searching for the title, my my the the way this came about is that uh, we're working through images of music here, uh, the sounds of the street, what the neighborhood sounds like, and and so riff a riff is you know in improvisation sort of the basic idea is you begin with a riff and you spin it out into whatever whatever you can and so I, I sometimes i try to be hesitant with the word love it can be sort of hard to grasp mm. onto um, but i think ultimately what's happened is um, that i've been loved i've been turned around by being loved and i've been able to love in return and so through these small acts of love these little pieces of friendship that uh, that I try to detail in the book through stories, um, then you know that that's changed my world. So you dedicate the book to a person called Khalil. Tell us tell us why. Uh, Khalil was 13 years old uh, when he was killed. It happened right on our corner. Uh, so the book mm-hmm. is dedicated to his memory. It, he was a, a remarkable young man that was full, just full of joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really he significantly impacted everybody, uh, my uh, in particular my children and uh, my family. Uh, but he was he was just deeply loved within the neighborhood, and so the seeds for this book probably began about the time of his murder, which was in August of 2012. Um, as I began to to try to work out in words mm. how that event had affected me. Now you write about that in the book. Yeah. From several perspectives, you're dealing with it and also what the outside world thinks about right. what happened. Right. Yeah. So how long did it take for the pigment of your skin to change color? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this, uh, yeah, this is, this is, that's a good question. <laughs> Uh, so I'm still a white guy. Yeah, right? yeah. You look white. That, that yeah. hasn't changed. But you're also brother Greg. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, but also, right. I, I, I'm I'm in the process of what I usually talk about as unlearning whiteness. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think it's helpful for us to think about race not as a a given that we're uh, necessarily defined into by pigmentation, um, but as a series of habits and as a social location of the the um, uh, the ways that we interact with people and the and the positions of power that we have and influence that we have in the world. What do you think so, it is that, that that we grow up and 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 sometimes there's this reaction to 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 think about telling someone that this person is a black person as opposed to well, this is a white guy with long hair or whatever the descriptor would be. Why, yeah. why, why is it? You mentioned well, it in your piece about how there's the normative versus mm-hmm. the not. Yeah, right? so, well, so for one, uh, you know, humans are always categorizing the world, right? So that, okay. that helps us yeah. to, to understand the surroundings that we're in. Um, but in, so what I mentioned in, in the, the piece that you heard at the opening is that in a white-dominated society, we often think that white is normative, mm-hmm. that white people don't have a culture, for instance, Um and so often that goes unnamed. And so one of the ways that whiteness kind of works in an insidious fashion with us is that that we don't have to pay attention to it. Whereas people of color haven't had the the luxury or the privilege of not having to pay attention to that. So you're you're kind of um, in a community where you're the one who looks different, right? And, right. And so right. how did it feel to be accepted? without regard to the color of your skin? So um, I would say that it, it has felt 
like a remarkable act of love because I have been accepted even with regard to the color of my skin. Mm. So I'm still a white guy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I've been accepted uh, in a place where uh, the meaning of that hasn't been clear to me, and and I understand it more deeply now. But folks have loved me uh, anyway, in some ways, and they've helped me to unlearn, or at least to learn some of those those racial habits that I have, and to help help me to unlearn some of the harmful ones. Well, let's read a little bit more from a riff of love here. You're going to go to a passage from the uh, chapter called Jam Session. Okay. Starting with the places. Yep. The places with the broken windows get the bus ministry. The bus ministry is when the suburban church picks up the kids from a poor neighborhood on Sunday morning on a bus. The volunteers promise cookies and lemonade, plus a ride on the bus with the cool paint job. They drive off as heroes to save the children. Later, the volunteers will tell harrowing tales about their dangerous bus journey across the railroad tracks. They're living out a bold faith, risking themselves in order to save those poor souls. In the neighborhood... The bus ministry is a weekly reminder that church people do not think your place is worth inhabiting. In Broken Windows theology, churches, like police departments, wrongly identify what is happening in a place and act on their assumptions to enforce a social structure that cannot liberate anyone. Christians, especially white Christians, see what they think are broken windows and try to help with little initiatives and projects that attempt to get at the visible distress without addressing the problematic foundations that concentrate the strain of society in certain places. Perhaps congregations address those outward signs with a feeding ministry or a clothes closet. On the appointed day, some poor people get fed a meal in a soup line. Others serve the meal in the soup line. Such works of mercy can serve an important role, but they also reinforce who has power and who does not. Rare is the ministry that bursts the boundaries of who serves and who gets served. Dinner tables are the perfect place for breaking boundaries, for nourishing the kind of community that can heal the brokenness of the world. But tables can also reinforce brokenness. Typically, some people leave with bellies full, and others do not sit down to eat, but leave feeling useful. Nobody gets free. Or it may happen like this. The volunteer ministries spend hours each week working in the clothes closet. They receive donations, sort through clothes, do paperwork, open up, and then stay after to clean up. For one morning, as the result of several days' worth of work, they give away leftover clothing to people who need meaningful work to do and the opportunity to earn a wage from it. Everyone plays a prescripted part. The volunteer is always controlling access to excess goods, the needy always filling out forms and being herded into lines. And at the end of the day, those who lack still do not have what they need. Those with too much still believe that more stuff is essential to the good life. Nobody gets free. What Christians have come to think of as mission is mostly poverty tourism. It is a broken windows theology. Folks get close to some poor people for a little while, perhaps an hour, maybe a week, but almost never ask why poor people are poor, or how churches and church members profit from their poverty, or how to break those systems that bind everyone into haves and have-nots. To serve soup in an area with outward signs of decay takes a couple of hours per day. Jesus is not interested in a couple of hours. He wants lives, 
He demands souls. He will tear down temples and sanctuaries built on sand in order to rebuild them with the rejected stones of the world. Nothing less than rebuilding a church in ruins will be sufficient. All right, Greg, you use some controversial labels uh, in this passage here. <laughs> All right. Bus ministry, poverty tourism, broken windows theology. So I had two thoughts when I read this section. Um, and, and first, I mean this in a good way. Another good name for your book could be A Rant of Love. <laughs> what do you think? All right. Yeah. I've, tr- yeah. I've tried to resist the rant, but I'll, I'll yeah. go for it. Okay. Yeah, and, maybe and, some moments. And two, you seem to be picking on people trying to help who might feel repelled by the message. What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I don't want to pick on folks for sure, um, I, but I do want us to think about uh, whether our intentions and our impact really line up. So uh, I've, I've been, uh, I've served in the soup kitchen, right? And I, I've, I've sorted clothes at the clothes closet, and I've been on the week-long uh, mission trips to places around the world. Which is so, a lot more than a lot of people do. And, sure. And, a lot, and the churches that are doing what you describe in here is a lot more than a lot of people do. Sure. Right. Sure. Yet, um, people have been doing those things for decades on end. Right. And, uh, and so those, those are charity, right? In, in the traditional Christian language, we call those the works of mercy. And I, I certainly don't want people to stop doing the works of mercy. But at the same time that we're doing those works, we've got to be asking, uh, why is it that we have to have soup kitchens, for instance, or you know, why is it uh, when when our when our youth groups go to Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, uh, what what are the conditions that led to the the poverty and the repressive environments that we see there? And so, if we're not at the same time that we're doing the works of mercy, if we're not asking the systemic questions, of what brings this about? Um, that, then we're not really getting at the at the depth of what's happening, right? We're making ourselves useful for the day without getting at the depths of the way that the world is constructed and how we how we can be working on fixing those systems as well. Can you have one without the other? I mean, there is, one could be a gravitation toward the other. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I think I think that is that's worth saying mm-hmm. that uh, there are uh, for me. Um, those sorts of experiences were sort of a gateway mm-hmm. into doing what I hope is, is work of more depth in, in a systemic sense. Because it, op- it opens the eyes to, of the volunteers when they see it does. what they're working with. Right? It does. But, but, you're, but, you're but, li- but you're a little bit like Jesus here, right? You're not, you say he's not interested in a couple of hours. He, yeah. You're turning over tables. You're making feel, people feel uncomfortable. Right. right? Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm turning over the tables at the soup kitchen. <laughs> That's, okay. That might not be what Jesus had in mind. Yeah. Um, but I, I do so. But I do think, for instance, there's there's a bus. I saw it on Sunday morning that comes through Enderley Park and and uh, that picks up kids and takes them somewhere else. And I think that in our in our desire to do good, sometimes we actually do harm without recognizing it. How so? How so? So what, so what I mean by that um, is that uh, in actuality. I've lived there for a long time. I can tell you, Enderley Park is a is a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, there's there's amazing stuff that happens there. And what's missing in Enderley Park is is power, often, 
so our, our, we have very powerful neighbors who are able to act for themselves. But when church folks come from the outside, and rather than encouraging that power, rather than working from the inside, they take our kids and they take them somewhere else and try to change them and then bring them back and feel sorry for them in the process, which is what tends to happen in those sorts of uh, ministries, as they get called, then then that actually perpetuates the harm. That doesn't that doesn't help either side. It keeps it keeps the white folks who are coming from the outside seeing that neighborhood in a particular way, and it keeps the poor people who are on the inside, in this case, black people. Uh, it it sort of perpetuates that system that says we've got to go somewhere else to get the good stuff. So let me ask you this: When I visited with you before the podcast, you walked me around the neighborhood yep. a little bit, and and. I sensed uh, pride in what you were showing me, but also a bit of exhaustion as well. Is is this a ministry yeah. that just takes every ounce of your being? Sure. Yeah. It has taken. I mean, it's taken a lot out of us. So we've been doing it for almost fifteen years, right. and I, I've hit a point that I think is fair to call burnout. So I'm actually. Uh, on sabbatical right now. I pulled you uh, out of sabbatical. To, yeah, you did. Yeah. You did. A couple but, hours out of sabbatical. By the time this comes out, you won't be on sabbatical. You'll right. be back at work. Or I'll yeah. be back at work. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, I, th- I think that for any of us who uh, who do intense work that takes a lot of energy out of us, and particularly living in a context that at times has, you know, there's a lot of stresses that go with with that environment, um, that we've got to we got to find some time, some ways to get away from that stress and to renew ourselves. And I'm really grateful for my opportunity. I want all my neighbors to have that same kind of opportunity. All right, Greg. So there's a there's a section in your book, and for lack of a better word, I'm just going to refer to it as signs. I think the the chapter is backwater blues, but you talk about a marker for S. B. Alexander that is right there in the community and how that that sign has meanings that people walking by don't necessarily pick up on. Yeah. Can you talk about that a second? Right. Yeah, sure. So uh, Enderley Park has a really fascinating history. It's taken me a while to learn it. Uh, I, don't, I wish I'd learned it earlier. So it's uh, Sydenham Alexander, uh, Sid, they called him, uh, was born to a, a prominent family, uh, the Alexander family in Charlotte. Uh, he was born in the 1840s. And so he came of age uh, as a student at UNC Chapel Hill and decided to enlist in the uh, Confederate Army, where he rose to the rank of captain. Um, Alexander was a complex man, like everybody's a complex man, but he came from a family of, of people who practiced enslavement and, um, and was willing to fight to maintain that system uh, within the Confederate Army. So he later became a politician served in the North Carolina General Assembly, served in the U.S. House of Representatives, and uh, served for a a large portion of his adult life with the key exception of uh, either four or six years, I can't remember off the top of my head, from roughly 1894 until about 1900. And these are the kind of things you say are left off of the plaque. You're right, right? these are left off the plaque. So the plaque's real simple. Uh, The plaque just just marks that this was the the place of his farm, and his farm uh, was a little country at that point, Enderley, uh, park, what's now called Enderley Park, was called Enderley, and it was his country estate uh, where he was a farmer and uh, was uh, working in the science, kind of the what was then the scientific agriculture revolution. So Ro- how do Ro- we use Rosedale technology? Plantation. Yeah. Rosedale yeah. Plantation yeah. was where he was born. 
And so he was he was the what was typical of that era, like Thomas Jefferson, the farmer scholar, right? We don't we don't think about that position in society anymore, but that's what he was then. Uh, he was a he was a Democrat, and at that point in history, the Democrats were the party of white supremacy. And so when the Republicans formed a multiracial fusion coalition, they called it the Fusionists. Uh, they took over the the state legislature. They sent a majority of the the U.S. representatives from North Carolina were the Fusion Party. The the governor at that point was a, a Republican as well, and so they they sent S.B. Alexander packing. Uh, he he had to go home for a while. Then in 1900, the Democrats won the elections again and established Jim Crow law. So Jim Crow didn't actually show up at the time right after the Civil War. It was another so 35 that, that years. So sign can kind of be a marker to Jim Crow as well. Yeah. So in yeah. some ways. Yeah. Um, so when there was a in 1900 there was a white supremacy parade down Tryon Street through hmm. downtown Charlotte, and uh, the young folks who were running the party at that point uh, called the white supremacist party invited S. B. Alexander to be the grand marshal, the honorary marshal of their parade. And right? you have a, you have a plaque in your neighborhood too. And yeah. so there's yeah. a plaque in the neighborhood to him yeah. because that was the land that he lived on. So what I've tried to explore is how that that sign is is complex on that corner um this but, was a man who go ahead no i was gonna say but but the placement of the sign and the timing of the placement you talk about in the book as well Ac- yeah and it, you want you want to yeah speak so the so the the sign is on the is at the corner of tuckasegee road and parkway avenue uh, i live at the corner of tuckasegee and parkway khalil was killed at the corner of tuckasegee and parkway and so that particular corner is just loaded with these layers of meaning. Um, you know, the, the land predating white settlers here was the, the land of Catawba and Waxhaw people, right? And then settlement happens, uh, colonial settlers come, S.B. Alexander runs a farm. Um, when his heirs parcel it off into a neighborhood, there are racially restrictive covenants that say only persons of the white race will be able to live or run businesses in this neighborhood. And you say on page 99, though I'm sure the timing of the placement of the Alexander Marker was purely coincidental, it took place as the first moves toward displacement of the black people of Enderley Park, and especially poor people, were happening. That's right. So gentrification is starting now, yeah. and the sign just happens to show up at that time. And so, so there are all these layers of things that are happening, and, and that's what I'm trying to explore. Um, Khalil has been killed on this site, and now gentrification is happening. And what gentrification is going to do is, is to wind up in the forced displacement of poor people from our neighborhood, and in this case, uh, they're poor black people who are going to have to move elsewhere. So the sign goes up, black people are displaced, white people come and build Enderley Park, but then later they leave. Right. The sign stays. Right. Right. Um, and gentrification is coming back. And gentrification, right. Uh, Greg, if you were going to construct a sign in Enderley Park, who or what would you build a sign to? So one of the things that I say in the book is is that folks find ways to to make little altars, right? That, that's in, It's in the DNA of humans. Humans have been making altars since we first showed up on the planet. Uh, and so Jacob uh, builds an altar at, at the place where he has this dream of uh, of angels climbing up this ladder in and out of heaven. 
uh, and, and people have, have always been making altars. So in the same way, people make altars around the neighborhood. One of the fun ways that that happens is uh, if, a, if a, a segment of sidewalk gets busted up for some reason, then the city will come pour new concrete and inevitably, as soon as the crews leave, there'll be a, f- a few folks who will <laughs> hand, go out hand and prints, right, yeah. handprints, their names. And uh, critically for me, there are at least five places, maybe six, that I've counted in the neighborhood where somebody has written R.I.P. Khalil hmm. or I love you, Khalil, or something like that into a freshly poured slab of concrete. So to me, so we're, our, we're making signs. People gotcha. along Tuckasegee are already making signs. Uh, sometimes they go unnoticed. They don't get as prominent a uh, place as S.B. Alexander does. All right. When we come back, Greg is going to read two more pieces from his book, A Riff of Love, including a letter that he writes to his children. Hey, listeners, I'm here with Linda Bouchard, Chief Inspiration Officer of Booking Authors, Inc. and host of Literary Latte. Linda, tell us about this thing called Booking Authors, Inc., Well, Landis, it's a boutique public relations firm dedicated to Southern authors, and it is a full suite public relations agency. And, you know, authors are always making mistakes about what they should and shouldn't do in marketing. Do you have any uh, tips on what we should be thinking about? Well, you can never start early enough in the marketing process, so beginning early is key. Keeping expectations low, knowing how your book is different from all the others out there in your genre and also having a budget for marketing. Good points. Now you work with a lot of high profile authors. What do you enjoy about working with authors? What I love most is learning something new every single day from my authors. Uh, It is a collaborative effort and a symbiotic effort and I love learning from them and technology changes so rapidly. And this technology thing changing, is that one of the reasons you decided to uh, take on a podcast? You just didn't have enough technology in your life? (laughs) (laughs) That has definitely been a learning curve, yes. So tell tell us, Literary Latte, if we tune in, and I have, what are we going to hear? Well, it is a podcast with a southern accent on writing. I interview southern authors or writers with southern-themed books, as well as southern publishing industry pros. That sounds great. Hey, Linda, where can we find out more about your business and your podcast? Booking Authors Inc. with a K.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. All right, we're back with uh, Greg Gerald, who's the author of A Riff of Love Notes on Community and Belonging. It's a book about Enderley Park and, and much more. Um, Greg, this is our section that I'm calling in season three, author to author. We take uh, an author from one of the earlier seasons, and uh, they give you a couple of questions to answer. How about that? All right. Okay. So this comes from uh, Kathy Afrio. She's the author of Rock, Paper, Scissors, Scenes from a Charmed Divorce, uh, which was an award-winning piece on relationships and marriage. Um, so here's our first question. Writing and sharing our story is a huge act of vulnerability. What did you do to push through the fear, and did you ever experience a vulnerability hangover once it was out in the world? <laughs> <laughs> you stumped uh, him, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stumped me. So um, I do, th- I do exper- I have experienced sort of a, a vulnerability hangover. Um, I think the 
uh, part of that is, is just my own, I, I don't know, incompetence as a writer, I guess. You're not incompetent. Uh, <laughs> that this is a very lyrical piece. And, and by the way, listeners, he weaves music um, and his own life experiences into it. So don't don't listen to it. <laughs> Go ahead. But what, but what I mean is that, that there, are, there are things that exist within me that I've tried to express that I just, you know, that, that I can't get them onto a page the right way. Uh, and so, so there's this attempt to share what I mean, and yet once it's out in the world, uh, you kind of lose control of that, right? Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. can't hang on to it. Right. Um, Her second question, okay. what, what person from your past who is no longer with us would you most like to be able to read your book? Huh. I didn't say these would be easy questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think about that. I um my people are from Rockingham County, North Carolina, which is north of Greensboro, and I I just lost my my last grandparent, um, who had, who was able to read some of this before he died, but I th- I think I would have loved it if uh, some of my own ancestors yeah. were able to read this. In some ways, we inhabit very different worlds, uh, yeah. rural Rockingham County. Um, white Rockingham County mostly did you um, always make trouble as a kid yeah, yeah. no I never did <laughs> I never did so I guess I'd like to be able to stir the waters with yeah. them a little bit because yeah. uh, you I, might be surprised how they would come around I think I might be surprised yeah. and I, I'm re- I'd be really interested to see yeah. all right last question from Kathy what if any invisible help was part of your writing process you know um, my imagination has been transformed by a couple of key people in my life who never read segments of this prior to it being published. Um, but they really kept informing how I was thinking about things. So uh, there is, I'm a, I'm a theologian, I'm a pastor. Um, so there's some engagement with Bible stories here, mm-hmm. but they're, they're told all kinds of upside down and on their heads and stuff. And so the imagination gifted to me by a couple of key mentors, um, one by the name of Bud Fisher, mm. uh, really informed what was happening within the book and, and how I wrote it. So, and, and sort of living in Enderley Park every day, that had to be some sort of both visible and invisible. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, those folks have influenced the way that I've learned to see my, my own life and, and the neighborhood. And, you know, I write a lot about that, about the way that from the inside, I've begun to understand how life on the street works differently than I would have been able to understand it previously if I was just driving through, for instance. Did you have a book signing in the trap house? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. A few yeah. a few folks from around the neighborhood have been interested and wanted to read it. Okay. Um, and, and you know what? They've said, wow, you really, you really got it. Yeah. They've been very complimentary. So I've, I've been really happy about that. That's maybe been the most important feedback I've gotten. So what kind of feedback have you gotten from the white community? I've I tried to be careful um, not to be ranty. Um, yeah. As I said, but, in, a good, in a good way. Right. Yeah. In a, but in a way that to, to write in such a fashion that invites people along for the journey, but that is, is not scared to step on their toes along the way at times also. And so I've, I've had a number of people say to me, this was profoundly impactful for me and it stepped on my toes a lot along the way but I was okay with it mm-hmm. and I've been really appreciative of folks who have been patient with it 
and uh, and willing to read on even through some of the hard stuff. Um, yeah, I didn't stop on page eighty. I kept going. Right, yeah, yeah. right. So so I've been really grateful for that feedback. Yeah. So let's do this. Let's uh, let's pick up on page one thirty six here with Victor again. Uh, for the listeners, this reminder: Victor is the one who saw you as Brother Greg rather than White Man. Right, right. right. So we're going to start there and read a little bit, and then we'll talk some more. I want Victor to know, and I want to be able to say that I love him as well. So on the night he comes in to tell me he loves me, I meet his gaze while he says it. He looks right into my eyes, and I look into his. We hold that for a lengthy period, not letting go. These moments are too rare. This gift is too precious. We know, and we are known, if not in fullness, then still at a deeper level than we can describe with words. But we have a story for it. We remind each other of that night in the basement sometimes. It is our way of renewing our vows. A sacred moment is here. I usually do not know when such a moment arrives. I only figure it out later. But this evening, with Victor, I know what is happening. And so I want Victor to know that I love him. I want Victor to know that I know that he loves me. I want these things because right in my living room, what an unexplainable gift has arrived. It's the kind of love that turns people around. Both of us know that love has turned each of us around. When dozens of the saints gathered several years prior to join Victor around the waters of baptism, it was because love turned him around. When Victor helped me begin seeing through the lies of race by proclaiming that I am not a white man and then offering me some new ways forward, love was turning me around. In the Hebrew Bible, the term used for the theological idea of conversion is a word that means to turn around. The image of this language is of a person walking in the wrong direction, then stopping and moving in the other direction. To be converted is to change paths. To experience a conversion is to have your eyes and your body fixed on one goal, but while you are moving toward that goal, you get stopped. Your aim gets changed. Your new direction points you to another destination, maybe even to a whole new way of being. No one manages to turn around alone. Moving in a different direction requires someone to help you see in a different way. It takes at least one neighbor who loves you, probably more than one and probably over a long time. Victor is a great example of this, but he certainly is not the only one who has offered me the spacious hospitality that has allowed me to move in a different direction. When I walk into Sean and Jake's room at summer camp, I thought one thing about myself and my relationship with those young men. When I turned around to leave, I was beginning to reflect on how that relationship needed to change and what I needed to learn from that encounter. In the same way, carrying youth across the South turned me around again, drawing me closer into solidarity with them. And Charles Jones offered other moments of turning around, reminding me that the path I am attempting to walk has been blazed by generations of elders whose work has made mine possible. Every sacred moment that arrives is yet another opportunity to turn around once more, to circle back towards home with a flock of friends on a sacred corner. So, Greg, are we turning around in this society, or do we have much work to uh, do? You know, I think you could uh, you could cite evidence in either direction. I think we're, in some ways, we're making um, important progress. 
Uh, now, when you say when you said in here, you know, Victor helped you to begin seeing through the lies of race by proclaiming that I'm not a white man, and then offering me some new ways forward. As a, as white people, how do we engage in this conversation without being accused of not fully understanding what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So, um, which we don't fully understand. Right, we don't fully understand. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, one thing that we we have to do, uh, what the business people say is our due diligence. Right. Okay. We have to we have to go do our homework. Uh, we we haven't we haven't been taught through education, through our families, how to talk about race, how to think about race, how to understand race for what it is. So it's, it's, not, it's not about biology. It's about power. It's about economics. Biology is just kind of a shorthand for who has the power and who doesn't. Um, and so, so in order to understand, in, in order to engage better, we've got to know better. And that starts with re-educating ourselves. And I assume that includes listening. It includes a lot of listening. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the way that my, my high school band director used to, to tell us um, that if you learn something the wrong way, you have to do it the right way seven times to unlearn <laughs> it, right? And then, then you just, like just gotten yeah. back to scratch at that point after seven <laughs> times. So you still haven't learned it. You've just unlearned what you shouldn't have done, okay. right? And so I think it, it takes that repeated listening, uh, that careful listening, to, to get us moving in the right direction. All right, one of the things you mentioned in the piece you just read, one of the turning around experiences was carrying youth across the South. Yeah. And you, you write about that in the book. Could you talk about that just a minute? Sure. So annually, uh, the youth group that, that we help to run within Annually Park takes a summer trip. And during the summer of 2015, we followed the path of the Freedom Riders across the South. So we had Charles Jones, local activist, uh, who was one of the Freedom Riders in 1961, come and talk to us. And then we left. We went through Atlanta, um, through um, Anniston, Alabama, where the, the bus was famously blown up, uh, mm-hmm. chased out of town, tires slashed. Um, Birmingham, Montgomery, the, the Jackson. The right, right. We went to Selma as well as part of that trip. And and so what I think what we encountered is that we all were getting different things from it, right? So my imagination as a white guy going into these spaces sort of the recognition that even if it wasn't my direct ancestors, my people had a very particular role in this history developing the way it did. How, how did that make you feel? I, I mean, it's, it's so for me, it was really humbling that I got to accompany a group of black youth along this journey. Um, I also began to recognize um, that some of the fear that they felt associated with Confederate symbology mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, you know the idea that we were like we would keep passing signs right a lynching happened here an uprising was violently put down here right and so if you begin to walk in that space with people who would have suffered that violence and you're responsible for their well-being then that begins to work on your imagination very differently so that was a really deep and uh, you know, I would call it a profound experience to be in those spaces with those young people how did the young people talk about it when they got back or did they um yeah they talked about it some um i you know i imagine that it's still working on them Mm. in some ways um i think having having been inside those spaces um 
it, it was really inspiring to them. It also sort of left the question of like, what do we do with it now? Um, what do we, how do we join in the work now? They, they, they had this deep sense that um, our lives deeply matter, but that's not always reflected in our society. And mm-hmm. so what is, it, what is it that we need to be doing uh, as the young people or as, as us white adults who are with them to, uh, to make our society reflect how deeply their lives do matter? So, Greg, at the end of your book here, you give some advice, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you do it to your kids, like yep. like all good fathers do, right? Right, so, right. And uh, you wrote them a letter. And I guess the first – you're going to read the letter, but before you do I'm just curious, uh, how old are your children now? They're yeah. 8 and 10 now. 8 and 10. Are you holding this letter for them to read later, or have they – uh, are they they've too, are they too young to read it? They're, uh, yeah. they're not too young. Um, we t- we talk about all the stuff that's in the right. letter, um, okay. and we, we talk openly about it. Dear children, I'm writing to you because I love you. And as it is with people who love one another, I have to try to tell you some hard things, things that are difficult to understand and even harder to change. But we cannot be free until we change them, and we cannot change them until we understand them. Do you remember the trips we made to the state fair in the fall of each year? Among all the stuff to do there, the food, the rides, the animals, you and your mom sometimes went into the fun house. Along the path through the fun house, there were mirrors. One made you look like you had the legs of a giraffe. Another made you short and as wide as a hippopotamus. One made you look big and tall and wide, and it blurred everything else around you. The images in those mirrors are like how our culture works. Our culture, the culture of white people, distorts reality. It makes us see things differently than how they really are. Though we try to love our neighbors, trying does not stop us from getting hurt by the mirrors that distort reality. In this place called the United States of America, we start to see funny. Our vision gets messed up. Even though we know it is wrong, we start to think that the funhouse mirror is a real mirror. We start building neighborhoods of funhouses, which turns out to be no fun for anyone. Learning to name the issues is important, my children, but learning only matters if it moves you to act. The first act is to turn around, to stop looking in the funhouse mirror, to face the other way and to see the world as it really is, and to see our place in it and to run towards freedom. I would like for us to run together. But running towards freedom does not mean running away from our people. Once we get our eyes fixed, we will have to go back. You see, white folks have been using the funhouse as home base. They even send out missionaries from there and get other people to think those crazy mirrors are real. Together we have to return to them and to the mirrors of distortion and preach some good news. That sounds easy, but our people love the distorted realities of the funhouse. It will take a while to talk them out. And who knows, sometimes we might get drawn back in ourselves. But if we stick together, and pray together, and <coughs> sing together, and listen to what we have heard our neighbors teaching us, we will start taking that funhouse down piece by piece until it is no more. And when we finish, we will look out at the crowds of the carnival, and they will be so beautiful. My God, they are beautiful. And finally, we will get to be a part of them. The work will be hard. 
It may be dangerous for the demand of white folks above all else is that we keep the silence and maintain the lies of race. But we have lived too long near the ugly underside of those lies. We cannot be silent anymore. We will not be silent anymore. Besides, we come from a long line of malcontents and ne'er-do-wells from the rolling hills of the western Piedmont of North Carolina. We owe it to them, and we owe it to ourselves, and maybe most importantly, we owe it to our neighbors to finally rebel for the right reason. Yours in love, Dad. So that's a great way to end uh, a riff of love with a letter to your children, but also hopefully um, some other white people will read it. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. So, Greg, a good friend gave me this book and wrote an inscription to me, and in part it said that this book would buoy my spirit and challenge my soul. And he was right. Good. I want to thank you for your work in this uh, sermon of a book that's well worth reading. Thank yeah. you. And where can we find it? Thanks, Landis. Yeah. So you can find it in the places that you normally find books. Yeah. Uh, Park Road Books right. generally has them in stock. Good. The Levine Museum of the New South Bookstore does. You can yeah. find it on Amazon if you use Amazon. Yeah. The publisher is called WIPF and Stock, W-I-P-F and mm-hmm. Stock. And you can buy it directly from them as well. And how can people help um, QC Family Tree? So uh, QC Family Tree, qcfamilytree.org, uh, there we keep an updated running list of needs, stuff that, that we're looking for. Uh, we're also working a lot around housing, and you know that's a big thing in Charlotte now. So anything you can do to continue to advocate for uh, better housing policy, for more affordable housing around the city, that helps everybody, not just poor people. It helps everybody. Right. Well, I hope your sabbatical is uh, restful and nobody else bothers you to be on a podcast All and right. uh, <laughs> and you get and you get some good time off and uh, and get back to the great work you're doing. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Landis. Thank you, Greg. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. In next week's episode, we meet poet and prose writers Alice Osborne and David Poston, who share their socially conscious poetry, essays, and songs. Alice sings, not David, who only hums a bit. We explore a variety of thought-provoking and haunting topics, including David's essay on how reading made him a better person in the face of the Me Against You movement, and Alice's obsession to write prose and sing songs about the Donner Party, a family that traveled west for a new life over 170 years ago and got stranded in the snow in the Sierra Nevada mountains. If you liked our show, please tell your friends, and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are like the gasoline that drive traffic to the podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, which is free, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Our social media links, if you're into that sort of thing, are at our website, charlottereadpodcast.com. If you have feedback or an idea for an author to be on the show, you can email us on our contact page on the website. And authors are welcome to submit to be on the show on the author page. If you sign up for our email list at our website, thank you for that, we will give you a free ebook, a work of fiction written by your host. And by the way, if you do sign up for our email list, we promise not to spam you. That takes way too much time. We'll just send you periodic updates about the show. Please don't forget our sponsors, Park Road Books and Charlotte Mecklenburg Library. Links to our fine sponsors and the resources are on the webpage and in the show notes. You can find out more about us and our sister shows at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast.